Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas on how to lead your church into the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Now, here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. Today, we're welcoming Dorcas Chang Tozen to the show. Dorcas is an award-winning writer, editor, speaker, communications consultant, and former Inc.com columnist. She is the author of multiple books, including what we'll be talking about today, Social Justice for the Sensitive Soul, How to Change the World in Quiet Ways. Her work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Christianity Today, Image Journal, and dozens of other publications in the United States, Asia, and Africa. She serves as the editorial director of PAX, a Christian nonprofit dedicated to inspiring and equipping the next generation of BIPOC contemplative activists and is a high school instructor of social innovation at Valley Christian Schools. Dorcas has nearly 20 years of experience as a nonprofit and social enterprise professional. She served as the first director of communications for Delight, one of the world's leading social enterprises, and has provided communications consulting for social benefit companies around the world. She and her entrepreneur husband have been married for 18 years and have two young sons. Let's welcome Dorcas to the show. All right, welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. Uh, this is Lauren Richmond Jr., and today we are welcoming Dorcas Chang Tozen to the show. Hey, and thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, looking forward to this conversation. Been looking forward to it for a while. Um, anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you? Well, aside from being an author, I also um, have two other jobs. Well, maybe three if you count being a mom as well. So I'm a mom to two young boys. They're six and 11. And then I also am an editorial director for a Christian nonprofit called PAX. And I teach a high school class on innovation for social impact. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Uh, that's cool. That's cool. Thanks for sharing that. Um Talk talk about your kind of faith journey, if you would, kind of what that looked like for you, um, the beginning of your story and what that looks like today. Yeah, so I am, I believe, fourth or fifth generation Christian on both sides of my family, which is a little bit unusual in that my parents immigrated to the the U.S. Um, shortly before I was born. And so it was actually my great-grandparents, or in a couple of cases, my great-great-grandparents, mm-hmm. who um, converted to Christianity uh, through missionaries who came to China. Um, so... So it's really interesting that that sort of legacy of of those long ago missionaries um, mm-hmm. still continues today in in my family and many other families that I know. But I would say for me personally, you know, I have certainly been a Christian my entire life, have been to church my entire life, and I would also say that I have probably lived three different versions of faith Mm -hmm. through my life. So I grew up in a Chinese immigrant church, which was very loving, but also kind of your typical, you know, very conservative, very fundamentalist church, very focused on personal salvation, individual Mm -hmm. relationship with God. And, And so it was all about making sure that you pray and go to church and read your Bible and check all those boxes, and then you'll be okay with God and you'll get your ticket into heaven. Yeah. Uh, then in college and you know young adulthood, I did the whole deconstruction thing, which many people do in in that um, age, and I then became very passionate about social justice. And discovered, fortunately, you know, had some great experiences at conferences and with certain leaders and authors and recognized that justice is a huge theme in the Bible and that God cares deeply about not just our individual salvation, but our well-being, our physical well-being, our emotional well-being, um, and not just that of the church, but of the entire world. And so became very passionate about being involved in social issues. Um, 
And and then I burned out really, really badly multiple hmm. times, which we'll probably talk about yeah. um, later. I, I talk about it in the book as well and and realized, wait, this like I'm all in on social activism and I'm 100 percent laying down my life 24 seven for these causes. Something about this isn't quite working either. Hmm. And and so since then, I would say, you know, maybe in the last 10 years or so, I've I've been slowly finding my way back to a more balanced approach to faith, which I think is ultimately what Jesus calls us to, this balance of communing with God, taking the time to be um, quiet and to be reflective and to pray, but also being active and engaged with the needs that we see around us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, share if you would just some spiritual practices maybe that have uh, supported you or sustained you. Yeah, I think in recent years, I so I am very fortunate in my work at PAX to work with a couple of colleagues who are pastors and who very much have a contemplative mm-hmm. bent to the way they approach spirituality. And that is not something that I was ever exposed to when I was younger. And so I've learned a lot from my colleagues and um, a couple of practices that I have adopted from them that have been really helpful for me. Um, one is breath prayers. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I think uh, I grew up in a church tradition, and I'm sure many of us did, where like the longer the prayer, the better. <laughs> there was sort of this tacit <laughs> assumption of the more right. words that come into your mouth, right? The more holy and sacred the your more prayer is. Right? Lord God, Father, holy. Right? Exactly. Yes. And so to embrace these very simple yet heartfelt prayers, um, and to pray with my my spirit, but also my breath and my body, um, has just it's been a um I don't know. It, it it has just felt like a more holistic um, experience of what it is to connect with God. And another practice that I do sometimes and should probably do more is um, loving kindness prayers. Mm-hmm. I think especially in times when I am feeling upset angry, frustrated at the state of the world. Um, I see mm-hmm. terrible things in the news. It has been helpful grounding for me to practice praying um, goodness and kindness and grace and mercy and love, even for people who really, really frustrate me and yeah. who I don't agree with. Um, but but ultimately, again, that is what we are called to as Christians. And so, um, so it's it's been helpful for the health of my own soul and and for my ability to stay connected to the humanity of other people. Yeah, it's a lot harder to be angry or hold even hatred or feelings of hate. I feel like in my heart if I'm praying for somebody. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think is a, a big reason why why God asked us to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's jump in. Uh, I had Dorcas on to talk about her book, Social Justice for the Sensitive Soul, How to Change the World in Quiet Places, or excuse me, How to Change the World in Quiet Ways, uh, a book I read. I don't know, it's been a, it's been a few, it's been a while since I read it, um, but I frankly loved it and was really excited to have this conversation. Um, so I, I kind of want to start off this conversation just from sharing an experience of my own. So this was probably about two or three years ago, you know, right? Kind of in the height of of uh, COVID, probably like mm-hmm. that first summer when obviously there was a lot of, or, or fall, because I think during the summer was really the, the George Floyd um, mm-hmm. tragedy yeah. and then and the protest. And then obviously there was a lot of, um, a lot of uh, energy around uh, protests and social justice for good reason, of course. Um, but I had, I had this experience where I went as kind of, as there was a, um, there's like a social, um, you know, there's some kind of like social welfare group. I can't remember the exact who they were, were hosting some kind of protest or march against this. Um, there's a, there's like this property in my city that's been poorly managed by the owner and just kind of an environmental hazard economic, 
uh, drain on the the part of town, and the, and the owner really hadn't wanted to do anything with it. So there, you know, this group was organizing this march, and and you know, through my church, we were kind of promoting it to participate. So I went, and my wife was working, so I took my kids, who were I think like six and two or seven and mm-hmm. three, something like that at the time. Yeah. Um, so you know, we went, and I remember like my daughter, like they're doing like like the um the blow horn and the cheers and the chant. And of course my daughter who was six or seven at the time was like hated it. Uh, so we were hanging way back. Um, and then like we got there and like, there's just this, this scenario that went down that could have gone really sideways. Like I was hanging back because of my kids, but there's a scenario that happened uh, where I, from my perspective, at least like the, the, the march leader like really became I think inappropriate towards one of the property representatives and I'm yeah. like oh my goodness this could have gone really sideways really quick and fr- frankly like the the property representative was more level-headed than I would have been probably in that situation and I was just like oh my goodness like I don't I don't know if this is the right context for me um for my kids um, so I know in the book, you kind of share similar, I don't know if experiences, but kind of similar mm-hmm. feelings. So maybe talk about kind of what, what kind of led to writing the book in, in similar stories. Yes, absolutely. So I can totally relate to what you just shared. I have taken my kids to a couple of protests and it's always this hard, choice of, you know, I think there's absolutely a time and a place for protests. I think there are ways to protest that are extremely effective. I did choose to bring my kids to protests because I want them to have that exposure. I want them to understand that there are things that happen in the world where it um, it is so egregious that mm-hmm. even when it's hard for us, it's important to show up. Yeah. It's important to, you know, um, be be part of the voices calling for change or for justice. Right. At the same time, um, I think it did always feel uncomfortable for me. So being somebody who is highly sensitive, right? So the book is uh, really for people who identify as sensitive souls, and I'm very much that. So there are three categories of people that I talk about, which you could be all three of these. You could just be two. You could just be one. Um, and and all three of them, I'll say also, it's not a binary yes or no, yeah. you're in it or you're not. It, yeah. It's the spectrum. Um, so the extent to which you identify as a sense of soul can really differ. And exactly how it looks for you can differ. But but the three categories are highly sensitive people, empaths, and introverts. And so I think introverts, you know, we may understand the most in terms of, you know, people who prefer they who who get their energy from mm-hmm. being alone, who like the quiet more than a lot of noise and a lot of activity, which is what you would experience at a typical protest. Um, and as much as half of the population identifies as introvert, right? And then second is empaths. So empaths are folks who, you know, I think the vast majority of humans feel some degree, we have the ability to feel some degree of empathy towards others. Um, for empaths, it's almost like it's a uh, a superpower that we can't turn off. Like mm. it's it's mm-hmm. a radar that you just always have up. Um, and, and everywhere you go, everything you encounter, you just kind of pick up on what's the vibe, what's the emotion. Uh, you know, almost anyone you encounter, you may kind of not only feel what they're feeling or have a very good sense of what they're feeling, but but there's can be this way in which what they're feeling gets transferred to you yeah. and you absorb it and you start to carry it. Um, and so I think that that is why something like a protest or some sort of um, social action in which there is a lot of 
anger or conflict, yelling, that could be really hard for somebody who's an empath because then suddenly you're bombarded with all of these intense emotions that are not your own. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot to carry for one person. And then the last category are people who are highly sensitive. And this is something that I think we have developed our understanding more of just in the last 30 some years. Dr. Elaine Aaron is a psychologist who's really led the um, research in this area and highly sensitive people um they are they kind of live with this heightened experience of the world so many of them their actual senses you know what they see what they hear what they feel what they taste even um they experience it at a more intense level than mm-hmm. your typical non-sensitive person and so it it will be the case, like if somebody is yelling through a bullhorn, a sensitive person will actually hear it as louder yeah. than a non-sensitive person. And so um, so they they are just more sensitive to this the stimuli that's coming at them. And it is also often the case that highly sensitive people tend to be more emotionally sensitive. Um so we do tend to get our feelings hurt a little bit more and we feel really, really deeply. Um, if if something happens, whether really good or really bad, we tend to ruminate on it a lot. We think about things. So deep feelers, deep thinkers, um, and and there just is this level of intensity that in which our inner world operates. Um, and, and I'll say the wonderful thing about being a highly sensitive person, even though there are challenges that come with it, is that highly sensitive people, because of how deeply they feel, many of them, um, are, many of them are natural empaths and, or they just, it's very easy for them to connect Mm -hmm. to others. And so they have this deep heart and compassion for others. They are oftentimes drawn to, to help or to be with those who are suffering or who are having a hard time. They're very conscientious about what is not right in the Mm -hmm. world because they have this um, innate ability just to notice like what is off who's being left out, who's not being heard, what is unfair in our systems and processes. They notice it and they want to do something about it. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that, how does that relate to, how can that really, I don't want to say be a challenge, but be a limitation when it comes to social activism. Cause I'm thinking about, you know, those, those intense feelings, um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, the the obviously the um, the the um, can't think here what I'm trying to say, but the um, the audit, you know the noise and stuff can't think of the word I'm trying to think of. But yeah, talk more about that. How can that really be a limitation when it comes to social activism? Yeah, I think part of the challenge is that the way we most often understand activism is that mm-hmm. it is about protesting, marching, having these large events, shouting, debating, um, being in conflict, trying to win. And those all are things that tend to take a higher toll on sensitive people. And we generally do not like conflict. (laughs) We do not like loud noises. We don't necessarily like huge crowds unless maybe it's a happy crowd you know like right. at a concert or a game or something uh and and so part of what i'm trying to do with the book is to challenge us to expand our idea of what effective social activism looks like that it doesn't have to involve those activities it can and again mm-hmm. as i said there is very much a time and a place for those activities but but for us to effectively um, transform societies and communities to be more fair and equitable um, and loving, we can't just be shouting at each other. Yeah. <laughs> that only gets us so far. And so there are so many other ways that we can advocate for change from um, in in 
approaches that do not require direct confrontation, do not require us to be shouting at others. Um, and so I I hope that anyone who encounters this book and who identifies as being sensitive in some way, that they can be encouraged to know that, hey, if if you don't like that, if you don't like protesting and it's really hard for you, or if you don't like debating your friends on social media, <laughs> that's okay. You don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, other people can do that and that's fine. But um, but I would say, you know, do what fits who you are. Yeah. And and I would love it if we had more activists who actually advocated in a way that gave them joy yeah. and gave them life instead of um, making them just feel really angry and discouraged. Yeah. So let's let's dive into that a little bit more. In the book, you use two models to kind of dif- differentiate what you call a warlor, warrior king model and then what you call a priestly model. Um, I'm thinking of this especially in my context, you know, as a, as a pastor, um, knowing a lot of pastors, how there can be this this external pressure often to be like this angry warrior king model. Mm-hmm. So talk, just kind of define what those two are, and then, um, yeah, we'll go from yeah. there. So, so these models are taken from Dr. Elaine Aaron. She writes about this in her seminal book, The Highly Sensitive Person, which I highly recommend for mm-hmm. anybody who is interested in learning more about this personality trait. And so she, she takes these two models from ancient cultures where I think we kind of saw it more obviously. Mm-hmm. But the warrior king is the archetypical, you know, strong, assertive leader um, who is very confident, has a bias toward action, getting stuff done, moving quickly, speaking loudly. And I think in the U.S. and many Western cultures, we like that, right? right? As, right. as cultures, we think, yeah, that's that's what it is to be a leader. You got to be strong. You got to be loud. You got to be confident. And you got to act. The priestly advisors are the ones who are more thoughtful, are more contemplative, will take the time to plan, to get community input, um, to express caution, to want to ensure that we are making communal decisions, mm-hmm. that who will weigh the pros and cons, look at the in- unintended consequences of actions we may take. And so priestly advisors tend to have a much more relational approach to leadership. Um, and and I think just a thoughtful and ultimately it is a slower form of leadership in terms of they will act, but they will take a lot more time to figure out how to act yeah. before doing so. And and so what Dr. Aaron says is that highly sensitive people are those priestly advisors. Mm-hmm. And and not only that, but we are critical to the health of our communities and our societies. It is not a good thing to have everybody acting as a warrior king, yeah, yeah. Um, making what can often be rash decisions or, you know, it's it can be a, a lot about winning and achieving um, and, and showing what you've done. Um, but we really need that balance of people who will call us back to and don't forget about these people in the community or don't forget about the costs mm-hmm. that that we may bear if we act too quickly um and and so we need these priestly advisors because they are they are our conscience they are our sources of wisdom and they are our sources of um community relationship yeah i appreciate you saying that i know you know, from my own experience, even thinking back, you know, two, three years ago during that summer, you know, there was this external pressure on, I know that was directed toward me of like, hey, you, you've got to do something, you've got to do something sooner, you got to do something quicker. And I was like, hey, I really feel like I haven't properly formed my thoughts. 
you know, I really yeah. haven't feel like I've had the time and space to think about what is, you know, what what God wants me to say or what God wants me to do, right? How how do you like I think that's the challenge is there's so much external pressure mm-hmm. because we're in such a quick, fast-paced context, like you say, to to move fast, make mistakes. Yeah. Like what's your advice for you know, again, again, this is a this is a a podcast primarily for pastors and church leaders. Like for a pastor who's, you know, who's a highly sensitive person, and you know, I mean, I mean, obviously, as we're recording this with the, you know, more um, war and violence happening in in the Middle East, um, I know that just from from my experience, I know there'll be pastors who are going to get pressure and feel pressure, be like, I, I've got to say something on, on the, on the conflict. Um, yeah. And like, do you have, do you have like a, a go-to response? Like how do you like create space for yourself to create space? If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's such a great question. And I think it is so true and helpful just to name it, that those pressures are real, that they exist and and it's hard not to go along with with what others are telling you um and i think especially in our world of social media right we just we expect mm-hmm. we've come to expect immediate responses from everybody and i will say i think and i would hope most people agree with me that i don't think that has served us well right <laughs> social media it's is debatable at very, least right a very clear example, right, of just people reacting, knee-jerk reactions left and right. And I think it has only driven us further apart. Yeah. And so what I would say, you know, the um yeah, the the conflict happening, every all the violence that's been happening in the Middle East, um, as we're recording this, it's it has been weighing very heavily on me. I think that there is something to be said about at least acknowledging Mm -hmm. to your congregation what is going on, right? Because I have certainly been in church settings where you just carry on, (laughs) like nothing has happened. And and that doesn't serve people well when everyone can feel that shift of the world has fundamentally changed. We cannot ignore this. At the same time, I do not think that it requires us to have a stance, mm. to have a fully formed opinion, mm-hmm. to have a call to action right away. I yeah. mean, you know, as you and I are talking, it's only been a few days. Right. And and this is huge. And what what is happening is in response to hundreds, if not thousands of years of history, right? right? And so to expect that within 24 hours, you would know exactly what to do and say, um, that doesn't really make sense to me, you know? But I think it's absolutely appropriate to um, to acknowledge it and to just create space for the emotion of it, hmm. you know, I think in this particular context, in a lot of um, contexts related to social injustice, oftentimes I think the the first and maybe most appropriate response is is simply lament. Yeah, you know, lament that this is happening. Lament at um, what we see humans doing to one another and to our planet, and um, and I think that that lament and 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 crying out to God is always a good place to start. Yeah, that's good. And, that's helpful. Um, yeah, and the the action, the you know, releasing of statements or whatever that can all come later. Um, but first, let's just mourn together mm-hmm. for the loss of life, for the. Um, the violence and the cruelty that we see being inflicted upon people, um, the ways in which hatred has um, driven people to unspeakable acts, um, and let's and let's just pray. Yeah, you know, as someone, what am I trying to say here? Um, kind of, I'm kind of a student of family systems theory for those familiar. And I think about like, for me, at least my perspective is like, this kind of like rushed to anger. I think mm. from my perspective can almost be a way of like the emotion 
is too intense. So I need to find a way to like just dump out my emotion rather than process like, holy cow, what am I feeling right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine that. I think um, sometimes anger can um, feel like, at least for me, anger can feel, even though it's very intense, mm-hmm. it can almost be like a safer emotion right. to go to right. because there's this protective sense. Right. Right. You're like building this barrier around your heart and you're holding other people at a distance. Um, and I'm just going to be mad mm-hmm. <laughs> and not and not let myself feel the other um, emotions of of grief and sadness, um, which which can be much harder to bear. Yeah. So in the, in the book, you you state that anger is not an effective strategy for social change and Again, I think that would come as a shock or surprise to many in this current context where, like we've been talking about, anger drives so much. And and I imagine you'd probably agree that in some context, anger is necessary. Yes. So where's that balance there? Yes. I think that anger can be very appropriate. It's a very appropriate emotional response, especially when we see evil, when we see injustice, when we see, you know, suffering happening that doesn't need to happen. And and I think that it's it's necessary we see Jesus getting angry at injustice right. in the Bible. Um it is it is very much, you know, God's heart to be angry at what is um what is unjust. Um but and and I th- I'll say also that anger has been found to be very effective in moving people toward action, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's this, um, it's, it's an emotion that makes, propels us forward. And so it can move people from a place of stasis or inertia to now I'm taking the first steps toward action. Um, so oftentimes anger is where we start and, and I get that. And oftentimes it, it, it makes a lot of sense. But I do believe that anger cannot be our long-term fuel. It cannot be where we continue to draw energy from as we pursue justice, as we try to right the wrongs around us. Um, because anger is, it's, it's this like conflagration that just keeps growing and mm-hmm. growing and it's so hard to control yeah. once it gets to a certain point in the book i write about anger being like a blunt instrument mm-hmm. you you get to the point where um your anger becomes so big that you don't even notice when other people are being harmed mm-hmm. by what you're saying and what you're doing because you're so focused on who or what you're angry at, you know, so there can be a lot of collateral damage yeah. um, in in the way that you conduct yourselves. And yet, you know, you don't necessarily care because you're all about the anger, right. you know, and I, I think anger can crowd out love and compassion anger can blind us to the humanity of other people and just turn them into our enemies whether or not they really are so i just i think that there's a lot of risk in holding on to anger for you know beyond that kind of initial response um and and honestly anger takes a lot out of us as individuals it causes a lot of stress it will literally raise your blood pressure you know it does all sorts of things to you to stay in that place of anger and i do think that it breaks a lot of relationships and and for those of us who care deeply about communities and societies being more loving and equitable and inclusive we should aim to be people who live mm-hmm as agents of love and compassion and and not as agents of anger. Yeah. Yeah, so you're right that the activist ideal, and it, it, I'm thinking as I say those words, you're really, when you talk about the activist ideal, you're, 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 you're writing as someone who's just purely driven by anger can be another tool of division, mm-hmm. oppression, and control. Um, yeah. I heard this recently, and I wonder if this resonates, that... Um, for forgiveness is necessary because without forgiveness or with forgiveness, 
action becomes justice without forgiveness. It becomes vengeance. Mm-hmm. Does, that make, does that track? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that if we hold on to anger, we can use that as justification mm-hmm. for all kinds of actions. We can easily turn into the same kind of people that we are protesting against. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, as as we're talking, right, there is this conflict blowing up in the Middle East, and it's been really discouraging um, to see the kind of responses. Again, I think a lot of it is people just having this instant reaction and not necessarily taking the time to think. Um, But on, on both sides, right? So I, I think because of my background, I know people who are very conservative. I know people who are very progressive and I see, I see people celebrating Mm. the loss of life. Mm -hmm. Um, I see people celebrating the, the death of, children and the elderly. Yeah. Um, I see people celebrating the destruction of entire communities yeah. on both sides of the border. Um and and to me, I just feel like if ever we find ourselves in a place where we are celebrating the death of another human being. Yeah. Something has happened in our heart that we need to take a really close look at um that you even if you know intellectually you are on the right side of history um in terms of your your character and your heart no you're not there yeah and um and real transformation is not going to happen if we cannot learn to embrace those that we disagree with to those that we've argued with to those who have harmed us it's extremely difficult <laughs> you know which is why nobody's lining up to forgive right. all their enemies right. um and certainly you know i'm not saying you have to physically mm-hmm. <laughs> embrace somebody if they are unsafe and toxic and wanting to cause you harm but but yes that ability to forgive to um to kind of release that power of anger and vengeance that they might hold over you um there is a freedom in that and um and it frees us to to love more deeply and openly and to um to hold to the promises of God that he is the ultimate judge and that um that in his time all things will be made right. Yeah. Um there's a lot more questions I want to ask here but for sake of time let me ask one more question here before we take a break. Um related to I think but something separate you wrote in the book you write that resiliency is about staying true to your calling, not necessarily keeping it together. And um, yeah, I, I imagine over the last few years, there's been many pastors and leaders and, and frankly, just people who have felt like everything's fallen apart for them. Um, talk more about what what you mean by that. Yeah, so I think... The risk of burnout for anybody in a form of work, ministry, vocation that involves giving, serving, Mm -hmm. advocating, the risk of burnout is extremely high. I know we've had very high rates of burnout among pastors and ministry leaders in the last few years, um, among nonprofit workers social justice advocates, the rates of burnout are always high. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, one one study found that at least half of nonprofit professionals are burning out at any point in wow. time. 
right? And um, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was a similar figure for for pastors yeah. and those in ministry. And so this question of resilience is is a big one. And for many many years, my assumption of what it meant to be resilient was the sense of well, I just gotta as soon as something happens, I just need to pick myself up, mm-hmm. dust myself off, and move on. You know, it's it's that. Um, ideal of of I'm just going to bounce back, brush it off, and pretend like nothing happened. And there actually are some people in the world who who can do that. Right. And kudos to them. Um, my husband is one of them, and I so admire his ability to do that. And that is not me. It just simply isn't. As hard as I've tried over the last twenty plus years to be that kind of person, it's not me. And it's just how I'm wired. There, it's not something I can change. Um. And so it it was very discouraging to think like, well, I guess it's just impossible for me to be resilient. Hmm. But as I delved more deeply into this topic, I realized that um, that there's a different definition of resilience that that a lot of psychologists use and other social scientists as well use, and that resilience is more about knowing who you are hmm. and staying true to your purpose regardless of what happens. So it doesn't mean that you don't get hurt, that you don't get tired, that you don't get bruised and battered and need to lick your wounds. It just means that, you know, the waves will come, the um, people will challenge you, conflict will happen, challenges will arise. And in the midst of all of that, can you still hold on to your identity? Hmm to your understanding of this is who I am, you know, for those of us who are Christian, like holding on to our belovedness mm-hmm. and um, and this idea that no matter what happens, I am still a child of God. Mm. And, um, and, and the sense of purpose, you know, that I have a place in the kingdom of God. I have a calling in the kingdom of God. And that idea of resilience, I love it because I feel like that's within reach of everyone. Yeah, absolutely. You know, no matter your temperament or, you know, how your brain is wired. Um, and there are a lot of practices that probably many of us already do, but, you know, we can continue to do to remind ourselves of who we are and our purpose, even when things get really hard. And if you can hold on to that, that will that will help see you through. Um a lot of challenges. And of course, you may need to take breaks. You may need to get some therapy. You may need to adapt how you work or maybe even change the environment yeah. that you're working in. Um, but but I think in terms of what helps you to continue to move forward is that sense of, I still know who I am. And I still believe that that this path I'm on is is my purpose. Yeah. Well, this is, this is, there's so much more we could talk about. Uh, we need to take a quick break here. But again, the book is Social Justice for the Sensitive Soul, How to Change the World in Quiet Ways. Highly recommend this for any pastor or leader or, you know, a uh, nonprofit worker who is highly sensitive, an introvert like me or, um, you know, highly sensitive empath. So uh, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Dorcas Chen Tozen. So thanks so much for the conversation. Um, appreciate your time and your thoughts. Um, closing questions, I always welcome folks to take these as seriously or not as you'd like. Also to think metaphorically of them if you'd like. Um, so if you're Pope for a day, uh, what might that day look like for you? What what you want to do? Uh, so... In my ideal world, yeah. <laughs> if I were Pope yeah. for a day, I would love to declare a day of jubilee. There you go. <laughs> you know, like what we see in scripture, a day of celebration and rest where there is the forgiveness of debts and the giving back of what has been taken and that those who have much would give to those who have less. Um, and I know that that would be so hard for people that I don't think I would last as Pope for more than you know, one or two hours, <laughs> but, but that is what I would love to do if I Okay. Could. Pope for two hours. We can live with that. Um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life. 
Because of the exposure that I've been getting to contemplative spirituality, I am really interested in learning more about and from Howard Thurman, Mm -hmm. who was a theologian during the civil rights movement, um, who, as far as I can tell, you know, the term highly sensitive person didn't exist during Thurman's day. Mm But he seems to be a highly sensitive person in that he intentionally chose not to participate in the protests and the marches of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. But he was a pastor. He um, he wrote a lot. He was a spiritual advisor, very influential spiritual advisor to Dr. King and many others within the civil rights movement. Um, and I think he just has so much wisdom to offer, I think, especially now with everything going on in our world, um, I would just love to hear from him of how are we as Christians, as the church, to respond in the face of so much inequality and so much violence. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? I think that... It's almost like there's um, there's two stories happening simultaneously right now, right? There is this incredible technological pro- progress that we're mm-hmm. seeing, right? And um, and the world has never had more knowledge and wealth and technological ability, and at the same time, these like age old human tragedies continue to happen Hmm. over and over again, right? Hunger, poverty, um, inequality, the refugee crisis that, you know, has been peaking for for years now, like the greatest number of refugees that we've ever seen in the world, Um, the wars currently happening, the conflicts, the, the ethnic violence, the religious violence, um, and so I, I think that people will look back on this time period and, and really question with all the resources that we had at our disposal, mm-hmm. how did we choose to use that? How did we respond to the greatest human needs yeah. of our day? And so far, I would say our track record is only so-so. There are some good things happening, um, but there's still a lot more to be done. I just want to reflect there real quick on what you said that this, this, this way of being is not just to put your head in the sand. Like it's clear just from what you said, okay. if I can reflect back to you, that you're someone who deeply cares about and feels the brokenness in our world. So for our broader listeners who, you know, if someone's like listening out there and like, boy, I'm pretty skeptical of this whole thing. It sounds just like putting my head in the sand or pretending tragedy and and violence and oppression doesn't exist. Like that's not that's not the case. Oh, not at yeah. all. Yes. Yeah. So we um we haven't even talked about the last, you know, third or half of my book, which is all about finding pathways right. toward activism that work for people who identify as being sensitive souls. Um, We are, many of us are going to be drawn to this kind of work and activism and volunteerism. And that is a wonderful thing. And you should totally listen to that nudging within you. Um, And my encouragement is just to find a way to do it that, that represents who you truly authentically are, that you don't need to bend yourself into, you know, contort yourself into strange shapes to try to fit the mold of what other people tell you that an activist needs to look Mm -hmm. like. Um, You can be an activist as an academic. I have a whole chapter on the power of research Mm -hmm. and data and information. I have a whole chapter on um, the incredible influence that engineers and product designers and inventors can have in terms of creating technologies that promote more equality or that help solve some of our most pressing challenges, um, you can simply be a really good neighbor and friend um, who is having meaningful conversations with the people around you. And research has shown that 
loving, meaningful, face-to-face conversations, one-on-one with people, are a very effective vehicle for change, for people to set aside their prejudices and their biases, um, that that is much more effective than yelling at someone through social media or, you know, yelling at them as you're marching in the street. Right. Um, so not only are these approaches that that maybe would be a little bit more comfortable mm-hmm. for somebody who is highly sensitive, but they're actually incredibly effective. Yeah. They have been shown. And so I have examples throughout my book. Um, there's more than a hundred different activists I talk about in my book who have been pursuing justice in these um, kind of unconventional ways um, that has been incredibly effective. And we can continue to do that today. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that thing about relational activism. Um, Didn't have time to talk to ask you about that, but uh, very worthy of uh, conversation. So I appreciate you mentioning that. So um, talk to, just tell us real quick where people can connect with you, find out more information, get, get the book, all that stuff. Yes. So uh, I am online, though you will notice that I try to be very careful in what I say <laughs> on social media because I have found that that is not a super healthy place right. for me um, and probably for many others. But I am there and you can certainly reach me. Um, my my handle is Chang Tozen on Facebook um, and Instagram and LinkedIn are the main ones that I use. I also have a website, changtozen.com. You can contact me through there or read more about this book or the other books that I've written. Um, you can certainly Google me. The nice thing about having an unusual name is there's only one of me in the world. So if you Google me, you'll find like lots of things that I've written and done over the years. Um, but yeah, I love hearing from folks. So please feel free to reach out. And the book is um, available certainly through, you know, the main retailers. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Barnes & Noble. You can get it through independent bookstores. Um, so uh, wherever you would like to get your books. And it's available as um, a hard copy, but also as an audiobook and an ebook. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing again. For our listeners, I highly recommend the book. Um, so I, I always leave folks with a word of peace. So may God's peace be with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.